one of the things that's really encouraged me is as Ben has shared, and often when he preaches, um, he works to make it a reality for us to put us there, to put us in context, and that's encouraged me a lot as I study, uh, not just to be reading a story, but to be a part of the story and see that. And uh, another thing Ben has done, and I'm not tooting your horn this morning, so no big gap now. Now, I've really enjoyed, we've been meeting Thursday mornings uh, for prayer, and uh, one thing Ben has done recently is just introduce a psalm. We read that. And it's, been, it's been cool to see how God's taken that, and our prayer time has, has been reshaped a little bit. There's still a request, but this past week, half of it was just praises. God has done this, and, you know, we had two uh, small groups start, and both of them were saying, man, it was just a, you know, God was just all over. We had a time of just getting to know each other. And it's the reality of members being members of one another. And uh, so putting those things uh, in place. And this week, I've been reading through Psalms the last few weeks just because of that, just because I've needed the encouragement, the worship. Some of them are pretty tough, though. It's kind of like God sustaining you through difficulty. Now, I've even had one of those kind of weeks. But uh, as I was preparing to, to read Scripture this morning, and I shared this with Scott so he'd pray, this, uh, what we're going to do this morning has a potential to be kind of quirky, and I'm praying it's not. It has a, a lot of potential for you to kind of be self-conscious, uh, and I'm praying it's not going to be that. Uh, we're, we've, we're enjoying uh, what I think is a, is a sweet season of worship right now. God's got our attention. He's showing how he's big and we're small, uh, how he sustains us through difficult times. And this Psalm 92 this morning... I have found myself, as I'm going through these psalms, trying to put myself there. And this week, it was one of those times where it was like, what if I had written this psalm, and I was taking it to this gathering, and I'm saying, listen to this. This is a psalm. And as I sing it, I want you to sing it back to me. And again, I know this has potential to be quirky. I pray that God reminds you this week when it was difficult and he sustains you. When you were blessed and you recognized it was his hand. I've done this on more than one occasion and the song is different every time. The melody is different every time. So... As I sing this, I want you to sing it back to me. And you can stand if you'd like. I think it's appropriate for worship. And as I sing it, I want you to sing it back to me. And again, I know this has potential to be quirky. I pray that God reminds you this week when it was difficult and he sustains you. When you were blessed and you recognized it was his hand. I've done this on more than one occasion, and the, and the song is different every time. The melody is different every time. So as I sing this, I want you to sing it back to me. And you can stand if you'd like. I think it's appropriate for worship. A song, a song, a song for the Sabbath. 
It is good to give thanks to the Lord. It is good to give thanks to the Lord. To sing praises to your name, O Most High. To sing, sing praises to your name, O Most High. To declare your steadfast love in the morning. To declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. And your faithfulness by night. To the music of the lute and the harp. To the music of the lute and the harp. To the melody of the lyre. To the melody of the lyre. For you, for you, O Lord, O Lord, have made me glad by your work, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing joy, at the works of your hands I sing joy. How great are your works, how great are your works, O Lord, O Lord. Your thoughts are very deep, your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know. The stupid man cannot know. The fool cannot understand this. The fool cannot understand this. That though the wicked sprout like grass, though the wicked sprout like grass, and all evildoers flourish, and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. They are doomed to destruction forever. But you, but you, O oh Lord, O oh Lord, are on high forever, are on high forever. For behold your enemies, O Lord. For behold your enemies, O Lord. For behold your enemies shall perish. For behold your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. All evildoers shall be scattered, but you have exalted my horn, but you have exalted my horn, like that of the wild ox, like that of the wild ox, you have poured over me fresh oil. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. 
My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. The righteous flourish like the palm tree. The righteous flourish like the palm tree. And grow like a cedar in Lebanon. And grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. They are ever full of sap and green to declare, to declare that the Lord is upright, that the Lord is upright. He is my rock, he is my rock. And there is no unrighteousness in him. And there is no unrighteousness in him. He is my rock. He is my rock. And there is no unrighteousness in him. And there is no unrighteousness in him. Amen. This is from Acts chapter 2. <clears throat> Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This is Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter, to the rest of the apostles, What shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. This past year we've talked uh, with Lily. This is Lily Grace Cardwell. And um, our little girl, we've talked with her a lot about repentance, and we've seen signs of repentance and faith. And it was interesting, a couple of weeks ago, when we got the family worship guide that Annie and Tiffany send out um, on obedience, and she began to connect immediate obedience with this passage of repent and be baptized. And I, we were hearing a, what shall we do out of Lily? What, what do I do? I, I, I have faith. I'm, I believe in Jesus. What shall we do? And we, we've connected that with her in our family times of repent and be baptized. And so that's where we are today. And um, it's hard to describe the feeling that a dad would have what goes through your heart and mind. The only thing I have to connect it with is uh, rehearsal dinner night before my wedding when the, the gravity of the moment that I was being given gift and responsible and being charged uh, hit me, and I was blown away. And I am this morning, the responsibility and the charge. And the amazing passage where he says this promises for you and your children that this little girl might have faith via my family and the family I'm in charge of. And um, I'm in awe and I'm humbled, a little scared, and um, thankful that I'm in the church with her. That's what I'm thankful for this morning. Lily, do you have any hope apart from Jesus for salvation? No. Then I baptize you in the name of the Father, 
and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. y'all pray with me? Father, um, I'm not certain of much, certainly not certain of much uh, in myself, and, uh, but I am certain that your word won't return void, and I'm certain that your grace is sufficient because that's what your word says. And I pray and beg you to guard Lily's heart with your word. Help me. Help Christy lead her. Help this church as we lead her and our other children. It's in Jesus' precious name that we pray. Amen. Let's pray. God, this morning, first, I want to lift up another church in our community. I want to pray for Faith Outreach Church and Pastor Rance Moore. Lord, I want to pray for their worship this morning. Uh, Pray that it is true and rich. I pray that it is driven by an exposition of the word. Lord, I pray that you are growing a people there that is amazed by grace, who uh, is captivated with um, our Lord and with your work. Lord, I pray that uh, whatever way possible that we can come alongside this church, even if it's uh, in an unofficial way, serving in a cubicle next to them or uh, serving on a team with them in, a, in the, the workplace, Lord, I pray that you'll find us faithful to pray for them and encourage them. Pray for Rance and his family. Lord, I pray for his marriage, first, first of all, that it is blessed. I pray that he is a picture of Christ in the church to family and friends and kids and others. And Lord, I pray that uh, he is undone as he studies the word. I pray that he is the first field that the seed hits. And I pray that it is rich, fertile soil that bears fruit. Lord, for us this morning, I pray that you'll find us attentive. I pray that you'll find us doing your word justice. I'm thankful for the um, for how you shape us in the word. Thankful for the weekly wedding that we attend. And as we sit this morning celebrating, enjoying you, I pray that you'll find us uh, tuned in. Uh, we love you, Lord, and we thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Turn to John chapter 14. Verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the whole world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. Last week, we began what's really going to be a four-part, I anticipate it be a four-part series from this passage on obedience. We talk about obedience, sometimes it's left, uh, we're left wanting the need to say more. And uh, so we're really going to explore this passage, and it's going to be our home base this morning. Last week, we considered this passage at face value, and we just considered the realities that the true lover of God, the true lover of Christ, as this passage tells us here, is someone who's going to own his commandments, meaning that they're going to own his ways and they're going to keep his commandments. They're going to do what he says. 
And last week, I think hopefully all of us reckoned with the reality that none of us does that perfectly. So if we read this passage at face value and say, well, am I really even a true lover? The same guy that wrote these words, John, wrote the book of 1 John that says that if you say you love him, yet you disobey him, you're a liar. And then another passage, he says, if you say you're not a sinner, you're a liar. You're like, wait a second, I'm a liar either way. I don't get it. I'm stuck. And last week we considered, looking at this dude named Peter, we considered that there's a sweet spot of grace. There's this guy named Peter that we looked at last week that looked like Dick Butgus, the linebacker, going after the football. Play after play. And jumping off sides sometimes, right? Hey, Jesus, good thing we're here. Let's build a tent for you and Moses and Elijah. You're lucky we're here. Hey, Jesus, I'm never going to let them take you to the cross. I'm going to put this upside their head, and it's never going to happen. Get behind me, Satan. Hey, maiden girl, I don't even know who you're talking about. Jesus who? Hey, other maiden girl, I don't even know who you're talking about. Jesus who? Hey, crowd that's following the maiden girl. Jesus who? We saw a guy that jumps off sides, and at times you look at, and if you were the maiden girl, you're thinking, this guy don't love Jesus. If you're one of the other disciples... James and John, and you're elbowing him while he's saying, hey, Jesus, let's build a tent for you and Moses and Elijah. You're going, shut up. You're a knucklehead. You're looking at Peter saying, man, you are an absolute bonehead. It gives me hope (laughs) for all of (laughs) y'all. And maybe me too. It gives me hope. I am laboring through a book by a guy named John Owen. He was a uh, Puritan pastor. It's called Overcoming Sin and Temptation. John Owen deals with something that's, that's unusual for a Puritan pastor. He deals with personalities and temperaments. I mean, people deal with those a lot now, but completely separate from what a Puritan would engage, worship and truth. So for a Puritan to engage temperaments and personalities is just kind of unusual. The guy that wrote the foreword to this book captured some thoughts that I think are good for kind of going back and grabbing something that we left hanging last week, and then we're going to get into our message. This isn't message yet. He's writing about uh, temperaments. He said, there's no, no temperament that's free from temptation, according to this Puritan pastor. The trick is to be aware of the threats that are easily overlooked. For example, those who are naturally gentle and pleasant may be surprised to find themselves, the gentle, pleasant type, far down a path that they should have courageously departed from long ago. But see, their temperament is gentle and sweet. Such a person may, for instance, turn a deaf ear to slander or a blind eye to injustice because acknowledging these wrongs might require the person to act courageously. Although it would be easier to mind his own business, he may need to risk discomfort by standing up for those mocked or being willing to express righteous anger in the face of discrimination. Others, on the other hand, that are not gentle and pleasant, Owen calls earthy. (laughs) Isn't that sweet? I like that, earthy. All you earthy people can identify with these next thoughts. Others who tend toward the earthy might rightly uphold what's now commonly called authenticity, but in the process, they foster selfishness and harsh thoughts of others. 
He goes on to say, he says, a persistent danger among Christians. This is why I'm hitting this this morning, before we even get into the message. A persistent danger among Christians is that we confuse certain personalities with sanctification. I'm going to tell you right now, one of the nicest men I know alive is not even a believer. If he were to come to Christ tomorrow, you'd look at him and say, sanctified completely, when he's a baby. We confuse often personalities and temperaments with sanctification, creating an inaccurate hierarchy within the kingdom of God. In fact, Owen believes that because of our various backgrounds and temperaments, it's very hard to discern the most faithful Christians since looks can be deceiving. These are words from Owen. Listen. He says, remember that many of the best Christians, of many of the best Christians, the worst is known and seen. Of many of the best, I mean, David, murderer, adulterer, but a man after God's own heart. (laughs) I'm thankful that in God's economy, those can exist together. That gives me hope. But Owen says, of many of the best Christians, the worst is known and seen. Many who keep up precious, legit communion with God do yet oftentimes by by their natural tempers of freedom or passion, not carry so glorious appearances as others who perhaps come short of them in grace and the power of godliness. Point being that we should have gotten last week is that the ground is really, really, really level at the foot of the cross. And there's nobody that I know of, nobody that's lived since before or after Christ that achieves this perfectly, loving Christ or loving God and Christ perfectly. And obeying his commandments and keeping his commandments perfectly. And we all need lots of blood. Buckets of blood. (laughs) That should be the point from last week. And don't let this hierarchy control you. Oh, he must love God a lot more than me. Because he's not struggling with the things I'm struggling with. Guess what? He's struggling with something different. We all need buckets of blood. And there's ample blood. That's the good news. From last week. Now, <clears throat> let me acquaint you, reacquaint you with the context for these words that we just read from John chapter 14. These are in, in the final hours going up to the cross. Now we're getting to our message. Okay, that wasn't the message yet. It's after he's broken bread, he's had the first Lord's Supper. Judas is charged out, stomped out, left the disciples troubled. Jesus charged the, tr- the disciples, don't be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And they're like, well, we don't even know where you're going. He says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. Stick with me and you'll get there. And he goes off to say, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. And then's where we engage this morning. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. The things that we drew out last week, the real things that we've got to get a hands around is that a true lover owns his ways, a true lover obeys his commands, and the beauty is that he manifests himself to the true lover, manifests in the New New American Standard, uh, is discloses himself. The same word in Hebrews says that he will make himself known. He'll make himself clear to the true lover, and that he and the Father will will make their home with him. 
A couple of psalms of proximity. I don't want you to, to turn to these psalms. Just listen. Psalm chapter 11, verse 7. I want, I want you to save your turning because we're going to turn later. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Man, it's a message throughout our psalms. The righteous, man, they see God. Chapter 15. O Lord, who shall, shall sojourn in your tent? Who's going to hang out with you? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly, linebackerly, <laughs> and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. I love the Psalms of proximity. And here's the flip side of that. Here's the dire reality of disobedience from Deuteronomy chapter 31. Listen to these passages. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, Moses, you're about to lie down with your fathers. Moses is on Nebo, looking down into the promised land, and God gives him this great news. He walked with these people for 40 years. He says, You're going to go lie down with your fathers, Moses, and then this people will rise and whore after foreign gods among them in the land that they're entering. And they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. What a bummer, man. What an investment. Then, as a result of their disobedience, my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them. The disobedient don't see God. I will hide my face from them, and they will be devoured, and many evils and troubles will come upon them, so that they will, be, so that they will say in that day, have not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us? Well, no, duh. He left. And I will surely hide my face in that day because all the evil that they have done because they've turned to other gods. The thing we, one thing that clearly we should glean from John chapter 14 that we have to get is a foundational reality is that God will not be mocked. And there are very clear sowing and reaping principles. You sow to the flesh, guess what you're going to reap? You sow to the world, guess what you're going to reap? You sow to the Spirit, you sow to God, you're going to reap God. And it's going to be good. Those are foundational realities. He manifests himself to the obedient, and he hides himself and removes himself from the disobedient. It's like a natural law. You walk in faith with God and you're going to see him. You thumb your nose at him in disobedience and he's nowhere to be found. That's a foundational 101, obedience 101 reality. And it's tidy, man. I like tidy. <clears throat> I got to tell you, I like black and white truths, things that are tidy. I like physics and chemistry and things like that. You know, chemistry, if you put in these ingredients, then bam, every time you're going to get that result. I like that. I don't know, some of y'all, but engineering types, you like that. I like this sort of formula. But as I was preparing this message, something in me is saying, but it doesn't quite really work this way. It just seems too tidy for me as I'm looking at it. Really think about it. Is anyone troubled by the thought that God manifests himself and moves in with the obedient? You may not be, because you may be just eating that passage from last week. You may be eating the presentation or the intro this week. Is anybody troubled by the thought, though, 
Even though we've developed obedience to really mean blamelessness, it still doesn't quite sit right with me. Have any of you ever had a time in your life when you were really seeking after God with everything in you and yet God didn't seem to be around? Am I the only one? Did anybody else look at this passage and go, well, wait a second, this does not compute. Have you ever had a time where you were being obedient and yet you're going, God, where are you? Turn to Psalm 44. As I was preparing, I think it was God's sovereignty that I was doing this while I was preparing for this message or preparing to preach John 14, 21 through 23 or 24. I was reading through Psalms in kind of a devotional time in the mornings and I read Psalm 44 and I'm telling you what, God had his hand all over me reading that Psalm at the time that I'm preparing this message. I want you to hear Psalm 44. We don't know when it was written. Some think that it was around the time of Hezekiah. Listen to how the, the psalm unfolds. First, let me point out, it's a mascal of the sons of Korah. We don't really know what a mascal is, but we think that a mascal is a teaching psalm, a song of instruction. So there's something that we're supposed to get from this passage. The psalm starts out like a lot of psalms. Oh God, we've heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. Crossing the Red Sea on dry ground. Drawing the nation of Israel out of Egypt through the plagues and the Passover. God, you, you are awesome. You with your own hand drove out the nations. This would have to be after they moved into the promised land. You drove them out. But them you planted, you afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them. It was you, God, because you bad. As in good bad. That's the way this psalm starts out. God, you amazing. <clears throat> by your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, you delighted in this people, the Israelites. And God, by the way, you are my king, O God. Ordain salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow did I trust. I listened to my daddies and my granddaddies who said I needed to trust in you. So I'm not trusting in my bow. I'm trusting in you. A sword can't save me. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God, we have boasted continually and we will give thanks to your name forever. So far, I'm reading this psalm and I'm saying that fits John 14. Doesn't it? It's tidy and beautiful. God shows up, manifests himself to the obedient. This computes so far. But then we keep reading. But you, God, have rejected us and disgraced us. You, God, have not gone out with our armies. You've made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You've made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. When I started reading to that point, I'm going, oh, they must have been disobedient. God's removing his hand. They're going to get their behinds kicked. 
says, you sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You've made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and the scorn of those around us. You've made us a byword among the nations. Like the nations, all they have to do is say Israel, and everybody goes, oh, chumps. Their God has totally chumped them. That's what they're saying here. You made us a byword, a laughingstock among the peoples, Israel. All day long, my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and the reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. Man, so far it's computing still. I'm thinking, man, these guys must have really been disobedient. But listen what happens next. He says, God, the, the sons of Korah say, God, all this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you. We didn't say, God, who? We have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back. Nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals. This isn't a misprint, y'all. You have broken us in the place of jackals and you've covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to foreign gods, that might make sense. Would not God discover this? For he knows the secret of the heart. Yet for your sake, we're killed all day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And they say this phrase that, man, I think I've said it before. Awake. Awake, God. Hello. Did you forget about us? Awake. We are, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up and come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Man, I'm telling you, this thing was tidy until Psalm 44. But I'm reading Psalm 44 and it's connecting dots in me that are going, wait a second, there's times where... This is making sense. I'm identifying with these guys, these sons of Korah, who are obedient and seeking after God, and yet they're saying, wake up. Where'd you go, God? We hadn't forgotten you. What in the world are you doing? Have you ever had a time in your life when you raged after God, yet he seemed distant? time when you sincerely sought him yet you could not find him man i must admit john 14 21 through 24 is just a little bit too tidy for me left by itself it's a great example that while one verse can be completely true it doesn't reveal the truth completely it's a little bit too much like a recipe for me it's a little bit too much like a chemistry experiment See, a recipe, you put in the ingredients and, bing, you get a good meal. I don't like to cook, but I can cook because I can follow instructions. And the instructions, man, the only thing in the world I've not been able to tackle is those no-bake cookies. Those <laughs> peanut butter, chocolate, I don't know how, how people do it. But everything else, I can follow the directions. And you get the same thing every time. 
Chemistry is the same way. But God is not a recipe. God is not a Pop-Tart. Man, I'll tell you, whenever we moved to Greenville, we thought that Scott and I, I can't tell you how many conversations Scott and I and Brad and Steve, these other guys had. We're thinking, man, let's put in a few doses of this, a few doses of this, and and then, man, it's going to be Pentecost. Because we're we're being obedient. And treating God like a recipe is what we were doing. A heavy dose of prayer, some thoughtfulness, a few measures of the fruit of the Spirit, a dash of salt and light, and God must show up like a genie. You rub the thing, and there he is. But in reality, our God doesn't work that way. He's not a Pop-Tart. He's not a dish we make for dinner. He's not an experiment in a chemistry lab. He is God, and we can't control him. We can't invoke him unless it's his idea. And while we can trust that his promise of John 14, 21 through 24 is completely true, it does not reveal the truth completely. And the key to understanding it, the key to embracing it and processing it, is to examine just how God manifests himself. That's where we're going to unlock it. Just how God moves in with his people. A little side note before we climb into it. The thing that makes it so difficult for us is I think that all of us, somehow deep down inside, based on our history, believe that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. The disciples did. They followed Christ for a couple years, and then they're walking in Jerusalem one day, and they see this blind beggar sitting there, and they say, hey, Jesus, who sinned, this joker or his mom and dad? And Jesus says, oh, no. He's blind, so I will be glorified in and through him. Blindness for the glory of God? But something in us says, no, good things happen to good people, and bad things happen to bad people. It works that way in most of our world, doesn't it? If you study in school and you work hard, you get what? Good grades. If you get good grades, you graduate cum cum laude. I graduated, thank the Lord. (laughs) And you go on off and you get yourself a grand job, boy. That's the way it works, Right? Good things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. The guy that eats right and exercises lives a long time, right? Employee that works hard and does a good job gets promoted and raised. We believe in those natural laws and pattern of circumstances. So it makes sense to us that the obedient lover is going to get some sweet blessings. It makes sense to think that the obedient will just really, in many ways, have the wind of their back. And the sails furled. It's all good, man. It's going to be gravy from here on. Prayers will be answered affirmatively and expeditiously. The businesses will flourish. Investments will multiply. And things will generally go your way. But God manifests himself differently. He reveals his goodness, his mercy, his grace in contrary packaging. And it's not as you might expect. Turn to Exodus chapter 12. I don't know if there's a more worldview shaping story in our Bible than the Exodus. I don't know if there's a better instrument to engage to help us understand the cross than the Exodus. 
Apart from the book of John, it's my most marked up book in the Bible. Because we're on an exodus right now. You may not realize that. We're being drawn from Egypt, this Egypt of a fallen world. And someday we will hear the words, come out of her, my people. If you look at the book of Revelation, these tribulation, these events of the tribulation, they look crazy like the plagues. I mean, some of them are even identical. (laughs) We're being drawn from darkness just like this people was drawn from darkness. So it's a great instrument for, for us to understand the gospel and to understand the character of God. A little setting. Just to summarize the story, Jacob, later called Israel, has a bunch of sons, a row of them. And one of them is just kind of a knucklehead, Joseph. Always running his lips, telling his brothers about all these great dreams he's had, how he's going to be special. So his brothers knock him in the head. We've had enough of you, boy. They throw him in a pit. They sell him to some, to, to, into slave trade. He goes on off into Egypt. And he goes to work for a man named Potiphar. Potiphar had a wife that had some interest in him, to say the least. Went after him a few times. And he was so zealous or so eager to get away from her, he, he left his clothes. I mean, she grabbed his clothes one day and he went off running like a jaybird. I'm not going to have that. Trying to honor his boss. Well, Potiphar's wife lied about it and told Potiphar that he was making the moves on her. So Joseph gets thrown in prison. Beaten up by his brothers, thrown into a pit, sold into slavery, goes to prison. Can it get any worse? Well, there's a couple dudes in prison with him. There's the cupbearer and I think it was the baker, the candlestick maker or something like that. One of those jokers. I know it was the cupbearer and I think it was the baker. And there and there, they have some dreams. And they're like, hey, um, Joseph, tell us about these dreams. Tell us what they mean. Joseph tells them the dreams, and the dream comes true. And the cupbearer actually goes to serve back with the Pharaoh again. And Joseph told him before he goes, hey, remember me, man. Don't forget about me. When you get out, you come break me out. But the cupbearer forgot about him for like a couple years. Oh, man. (laughs) Joseph who? And then one day, Pharaoh has a dream, and the cupbearer's dots connect, and he says, oh, yeah, I know a guy that can interpret that dream. Let's go get him. So Pharaoh gets broken out of prison. He goes to work for Pharaoh. He gets set up as Pharaoh's right-hand man. Amazing things happen. And then one day, his brother stand before him, hungry, needing some grub. And you may, hopefully, you know how the story unfolds. Over the course of time, Jacob and all the sons, Israel, Jacob slash Israel, and all the sons move to Israel, and they move to a specific, I mean, move to Egypt, and they move to a specific part of Egypt called Goshen. And they're living large. I mean, it's awesome. Pharaoh is like, man, Joseph's our right-hand man, and these family, his family is associated with Joseph's family, so everything's great. But over time, the Pharaoh, the next Pharaoh, or the next Pharaoh, forgets, says, Joseph who? Israelites who? says, there's a bunch of these Israelites. Let's put them to work. So that Pharaoh puts them to work, and they start making bricks. And over the course of time, they eventually become full-on, full-fledged slaves. And then it's over the course of time that God says, okay, now it's time for me to lead my people out of Egypt. And he does it through mighty acts of judgment. You may remember the story of Moses. Moses says, oh, I can't lead them out. He says, yes, you can. I'll give you the words, and I'll have Aaron come alongside you and talk. 
You go to Pharaoh and say, set my people free, and Pharaoh's heart is hardened, and Pharaoh resists. And over the course of time, there's these mighty acts of judgment. The blood turns to not, or the Nile turns to blood. Frogs, thick as thieves, jumping up in your beds. Gnats, flies, livestock, dropping stone cold dead. Boils. <laughs> I think I'd let them go. But Pharaoh's heart's hardened, and he keeps saying no. Hail, so big that it's crushing critters. Locusts. And a darkness that's so dark that it could be felt. And then the final plague is the Passover. The Passover is where God calls his people out of Egypt. He gives his people some very specific instructions. Go find an unblemished lamb. Have him hang out in your house for a few days so you can get to know him. Make sure he's unblemished. And then when I tell you, you cut his throat. And you take that blood, you take a hyssop branch, and you slather that branch up, and you slather those doorposts and those lentils. And then you sit down to a meal of that lamb, herb roasted, no leaven in the bread, and you eat every bite with your loins girded and your staff in hand and get ready because I'm going to call you out. So that's where we pick up after that plague. And during that plague, the, these folks heard Egypt cry. Just imagine your neighbors, your Egyptian neighbors, hearing them scream at midnight when a wife rolls over and bumps her husband and he's cold. He's cold because he just happened to be the firstborn in his family, the oldest brother, and he's dead in his bed. And she jumps out of bed and says, oh, my goodness, in her Egyptian language. She goes running through the Egyptian house, trips over the dog who's dead because he's the firstborn in his litter. Goes to check on the baby. Runs in there and in the crib. Firstborn baby's stone cold dead. And all of Egypt is wailing at midnight. And that's what we pick up here in Exodus chapter 12, verse 40. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was, notice this number, 430, not minutes, not hours, not days, years. 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is now a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. A night of watching by the Lord becomes a night of watching kept to the Lord. He's about to give them instructions on, you guys keep doing the Passover. You guys keep getting an unblemished lamb and gnawing on it. Once a year, celebrating this time that I drew my people out of Egypt. This precedes the instructions for the specific instructions for the celebration of the Passover. And here's what I want you to know. Here's where we're going to go in these next few minutes. I want you to know that God wanted his people born in the iron furnace, is what Deuteronomy 4 calls it. Born in the iron furnace of Egypt to remember him and to know him as a deliverer. Let me show you. Look at Exodus chapter 6. You have to turn quick because this is going to be a machine gun. <clears throat> Exodus chapter 6 verse 7. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that what I am the Lord your God. There's a motive of this Exodus. God's doing something here. It wasn't just a willy-nilly plan. He was up to something. Chapter 7, verse 5. 
The Egyptians shall even know that I am the Lord. Chapter 7, verse 17. By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Chapter 8, verse 22. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Chapter 9, verse 29. As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease and there will be no more hail so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. Chapter 10, verse 2. And that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I've done among them that you may know that I am the Lord. Chapter 16, verse 6. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And then chapter 29, verse 46. They shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. You think God wants to be known as their Lord? You think he wants to be known as their God? There's a motive to the Exodus. There's a plan to the Exodus. But here's the problem. How could they know him as big D deliverer without first needing a deliverer? How could he draw them out of darkness if they didn't first have some darkness? 430 years seem excessive? Not considering who God is and not considering what he did. He manifests himself to a people over time. And some experience the time of the fame of Joseph. Imagine in year five in Goshen, you're a boy growing up hearing about Joseph, the hero. Man, Joseph's awesome, but you know who's more awesomer? God. He's the most awesomest God in the whole land. God is all up in their face at that point because they just saw the whole story unfold. Joseph looks at his brothers and says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. That's what these families are enjoying, God's fingerprints all over them being in Goshen and them eating food and living. And man, they're celebrating that in year five. Some experienced a new Pharaoh who said, Joseph, who? Maybe it's year 100, who knows what year it was. So I'm like, hey man, don't you remember Joseph? Let's stand up for our rights. Hey, Egyptians, don't you remember Joseph? And he says, Joseph who? Get to work. And they're like, man, injustice. Hey, God, where, what's up? And then some experienced year 200, where they'd been slaves for a long time and there was no end in sight. And they had scars and stripes across their back. They're saying, God, where are you? And then some ate a herb-roasted lamb and heard the wind and the wing of the destroyer at midnight and heard the cry of Egypt and crossed the Red Sea on dry ground in year 432 the day. God had his fingerprints all over the timing. God was no less there in year 200. It was a plan for his glory. 
The problem is, is that you don't know where you fit into the story. You may be a Joseph on the receiving end of evil at the hands of your brothers that God meant for good. Or you may be the faithful father and mother under the heavy yoke of slavery charged with sowing God's story into the lives of those who would parent those who actually did see God's deliverance. You ever thought about who were Caleb's grandparents? Who were Joshua's grandparents? That never saw deliverance. They cried out to God, didn't see his face, didn't see his hand, but they were faithful to teach their boys and their boys' boys about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and a good God who's faithful. Or you may be in year 200 to 430 years of slavery, but God is still good and he manifests himself to those who love him. You may be in Egypt in some way, in financial times. These financial times, a lot of us might be tasting some of that. It's a far cry from most of the world, though. But you might be getting a little taste of something that you hadn't experienced before. Some of you may be in poor health. Some of you might be a single parent raising kids. Some of you might see yourself on mission in Greenville. I hope a lot of you do. See yourself on mission in a tough, overchurched context in Greenville. Where people say, oh, I've been there, done that. No thanks. I don't need church. Me and God, we're square. I, I made a decision. But the reality is we are charged with preparing tomorrow's church for Christ's return. You may wonder, where in the world is God? I'm being a good boy. Why isn't he here? But you've got to understand that God manifests himself and moves on his timing, not yours. You may be in year 200 in Egypt. You may be in year 429. You don't know that, but you can know that he is the Lord and you can know that he will show up. Let's look at another example. Turn to the book of Job. Last example we looked at unfolded over generations where there were like, I don't know how many generations, how many families would have cried out saying, God, where are you? And hearing crickets. But this is over the course of one man's lifetime. Job chapter 1 verse 8. The Lord said to, to Satan, he said, Have you considered my servant Job that there's none like him on the earth? He's a blameless man, an upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. We plug that into our formula in John 14 and we're going, oh man, God's going to manifest himself to him, boy. He's going to have the wind at his back. God's making his home with him because he's blameless and upright. He is an obedient lover. Yet God allowed him to be tested. Terribly tested. Satan asked permission to test Job. And for the first two chapters of the book of Job, Job loses everything except a few boneheaded friends and his pesky wife. He loses everything, even his health. And then for 35 chapters, months maybe, years maybe, Job 
rages. Job could have written Psalm 44. Awake! Where are you? Stir from your slumber. Please. I'm blameless and upright. Remember me? Ding. Remember the Glean commercials? Ding. And yet it's crickets. And Job rages. Man, here's some of the words from Job. Don't turn, just listen. Job says, teach me, God, and I will be silent. Make me understand how I have gone astray. Job 10.1, Job says, I loathe my life. Chapter 12, verse 4. I am a laughingstock to my friends. Sound familiar? <laughs> Job. I'm a laughingstock to my friends. I who called to God and he answered me. A just and blameless man. I'm a laughingstock. Man, it just doesn't compute. Job says, Today also my complaint is bitter. My hand is heavy on account of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him. Speaking of God, where did he go? That I might come even to his seat. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know what he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? No, he would pay attention to me. There an upright man could argue with him, and I would be acquitted forever by my judge. Behold, I go forward, but guess what? He's not there. And I go backward, but I do not perceive him there either. I go on the left hand when he's working. I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. But he knows the way that I take, even though I can't find him. He knows my way. When he's tried me, I shall come out as gold. Man. Job rages after God, searching for God, regretting the day that he first took breath, questioning God. And then in the final chapters of Job, God manifests himself. God makes himself clear. God discloses himself in a way that Job would not have known otherwise. Job stands before God, and God answers him out of the whirlwind in chapter 38. God says, who is this that darkens counsel with words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man, Job. I will question you. You've been asking where I am? Where were you, Job, when I laid the foundation of the earth? Where were you, Job? Tell me if you have an understanding. Who, Job, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone, cornerstone Job? Who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far you shall go and no farther. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. Right here, waves. Who said that, Job? Was it you? Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth? Did you, Job? Do you know when the mountain goats give birth, Job? Do you know? 
Do you observe the calving of the does? Can you number the months that they fulfill? Do you know the time when they give birth, when they crouch and bring forth their offspring? Do you give the horse his might, Job? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Man, Job, dressed for action like a man, beaten and bruised, sores all over his body, listening to his pesky wife, boneheaded friends, lost all his children, lost everything, dressed for action like a man, beholds his God. In the final chapter, God makes his home with Job and restores his blessings in his time and on his terms. You've got to see that for Job, it's actually through the trials and through the sufferings and the pain that God revealed who he is and that Job came to really know God. Man, John 14, 21 through 24, just too tidy for me left by itself. Because it doesn't compute with my story. I bet it doesn't compute with yours. And if it does for you so far, guess what? It's coming. I promise. It's too tidy left by itself. What we fail to realize is that God discloses himself and manifests himself and moves in differently than we may like him to. charge here is to be the obedient lover when you're hungry and when you're full. To be the obedient lover flinging yourself out of the boat to get back to your Jesus. When you have plenty and when you have little. When you're sick and when you're well. When you're in year five when you're in year 200, when you're in year 429. I'm going to close with a psalm. Don't turn there. Listen. It's a sweet one. And listen, I shouldn't have said close because I hear everybody kind of grabbing their stuff. Listen, please. Remember who wrote Psalm 44? The sons of Korah, an instruction psalm. I'm going to teach these people something. That's what they're thinking. Same guys that wrote Psalm 44 and saying, God, where are you? Awake, God, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself are the same guys that write Psalm 46. Listen to Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. (laughs) Something changed. They braved the dark night of the soul. They braved the time, the 430 years for them, however long it was for these guys, where they're saying, God, where are you? They said, no, he's an ever, ever present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way. I don't care what happens to me. I know that God manifests himself to the obedient. 
Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, there's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, a holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, and guess what? The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. You hear that? No, man, he's with us. God of Jacob is our fortress. Come behold the works of the Lord, how he's brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. Same guys wrote these words. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. You could insert in there. I will be known as the Lord. And I will do it in my time. And I will do it in my way. And I will do it through your version of a fiery furnace. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Let's pray. God, I'm so thankful for the rest of the Bible. I'm so thankful that we don't just have the book of John and we don't just have the chapter of John 14 and we don't just have the verses 23, 21 through 24a, but we've got this gob of truth that shows us your character and shows us who you are. Lord, I pray that we just won't be so short-sighted that we can't see you at work over the ages, that we can't see your glory plans unfolding that we can't trust you in year 200. Lord, I pray that you, through messages like this, through realities like this, as we engage and see you faithful and see you ever-present, that we can trust and know that you manifest yourself and make your home with obedient lovers. Lord, I pray that you will teach us to love when we have plenty and when we have little. Teach us to love when we think we're dying of cancer or when we're running marathons. Teach us to love when we're poor or when we have lots. Or teach us to be a people who fling ourselves out of the boat to get back to you and to be with you. Lord, work this in us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to have the Lord's Supper. I'm reading from Luke chapter 22. It's an appropriate place to read. Because this is the account of the Lord's Supper. It says, So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. Hopefully Passover is familiar to you. Hopefully you're connecting the dots. That that's what we've been talking about a good part of the morning. Go prepare that thing that is a remembrance of what happened 1,500 years earlier. Go prepare that meal that helps us remember how God has delivered us through the darkness.
So they said to him, where are you going to have us prepare? And he said to him, behold, when you've entered a city or entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house. The teacher says, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished, prepared there. And they went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Do this, this thing you've been doing for 1,500 years, remembering this little lamb. Now do it remembering me. Paul said, Christ has been crucified. He is our Passover lamb. It's his blood that slathers up our doorposts now. John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus, like every time he saw him, he said, Behold, look. It's the Lamb of God. There he is. Do this thing you've been doing for 1,500 years. Now do it remembering me. You know, they believed that Christ was crucified at the very hour that the rest of the nation of Israel was sacrificing their Passover lambs. They took the Lord's Supper the day before their Passover. The very hour that he's hanging from a cross is the very hour that the rest of Israel is slicing the throats of a bunch of little unblemished lambs. Isn't that beautiful? Do this thing now and do it in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. God, your goodness comes in contrary packaging. And we look at the cross, look at the most obedient lover that's ever lived and that lives now. We look at what he went through for our sake. And we should not be surprised when we go through tough times. Lord, I don't think that any of us would ever ask for those times or ask for those difficulties or ask for 430 years in Egypt or ask for the beating that Job took. Lord, when we deal with difficulties, pray that you'll find us with our feet squarely planted, knowing that you are there, that you're ever-present pray that we can sing at the top of our lungs with the sons of Korah knowing that you are good that we can be still and know that you are God I thank you for single moms and single dads I thank you for visual impairment I thank you for diabetes thank you for difficult marriages thank you for age for bum hips bad knees I thank you for financial times that are difficult I thank you for job situations that are hard I thank you for allergies and small things I thank you even for predispositions toward medicating with food 
our purchases. Thank you for everything that you bring into your hand that makes us need you more. Lord, I pray that we will be that people who can trust and know that all things work together for good means all things. I'm thankful that you're the kind of God that can take what other people meant for evil, what the world said it says is bad, what even our flesh revolts against, and make it a good thing. We are so blessed. And the cross is the sweetest picture in the world of that. We celebrate the cross this morning. We anticipate the wedding day when we will stand in your presence. We'll sing at the top of our lungs as our groom enters in. Pray that you'll find us beautiful and ready. And pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Appreciate y'all being here this morning. It, um, man, it's kind of a weird message. Uh, I think uh, church can be a place where we kind of paint on our glad, happy face and everything's good. How you doing? Ah, oh, it's good. It's good. That's why I was talking about that glad handing thing last week. But man, it's not good for everybody all the time. And church has got to be a, a people that you can bring that sort of stuff to and let God medi- medicate with good medicine and administer salve to those wounds. And hopefully this morning, this message has done that for you. Or you're realizing some of those things that you're saying, Lord, take this from me is the very thing that he may be using in your life to show you who he is. Christy and I told people for years that I'm not sure that we would be in the ministry, that I would be standing here preaching if we didn't have two visually impaired kids. God used that to bring us to our knees. There were times where Christy and I lay in our bed, racking, just racked with tears. I mean, just broken. And there are times where that kind of pops up again. It's been a while, but I think we just trust him now. We just see his design and his fingerprints all over the contrary things. And when we're talking about obedience and him manifesting himself and him making his home with us, realize that obedience via trouble, difficulty, pain, suffering is how we get to know our God. We'll never say, God, please give me some pain. Even Jesus said, please take this cup from me. But not my will, but yours. That's got to be where we land. We never ask, Lord, bring me some pain. But when it shows up, not if it shows up, but when it shows up, let it do its sweet work of showing you who your God is. He's good. He's faithful and he's ever present. Man, what an amazing God we have. <laughs> Steve started, started with our psalm this morning singing and Brad mentioned the wedding. And as funny as, as we were singing the psalm back to Steve this morning, I was thinking every week more and more this feels like a wedding. Each week. Like we get, how many, how many weeks are there in a year? 50-something? 50-something? How many? 52. <laughs> it was never part of my chemistry experiment. I never had to learn that. <laughs> 52 weddings a year. Isn't that cool? And we're just, these are snacks, getting us afternoon snacks, tidying us over for the marriage supper of the Lamb. God is good. I hope that you've dined today. I hope that you as families will talk about what you've heard. If this leaves, doesn't leave here, if it just parks here, then it's done nothing. 
It's got to go in to invade your lunch and your afternoon and your Tuesday for it to be worship. Otherwise, this was a terminal event and it wasn't worship. Worship lives and walks and responds. So I encourage you to do that. If you're not part of a small group, that's a great place to do that. There's some passages that we didn't go to this morning where God shows this in motion that we're going to talk about in small groups. If you're not in a small group, man, I'd just say that's urgent. You need to be in a small group. Those who are in a small group would give a hearty cheer that, yes, this is awesome. God is amazing in micro church. That's kind of what small group is. I encourage you to be part of that. You can call Biola at the church office. You can get with me afterwards. I'll get you in touch with what you need, and then we'll get you set up with that. Blessed that you are here. Y'all stand, and we'll be dismissed. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for the sweet picture of the gospel and the sweet reality of the gospel in Lily Cardwell, making an appeal to you for a clean conscience through the finished work of Jesus Christ this morning in the baptismal waters. I'm thankful for the journey that she's on. I'm thankful for the heritage that she's inheriting. I'm thankful for your goodness of being involved in her little life. Lord, I pray that it be the same for all of us, that the journey will continue until our very last breath, that you'll find us persevering, enjoying, knowing you, walking with you, and being part of the people of God. We love you, Lord. We thank you for our Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Y'all have a great day.